Let me invite you to turn in your worship guide to page three. My name is Darren, and I am pastor here. And I'm, I'm going to read this passage to you. It's a little bit lengthy, but just um, if you're new here, I want to mention that uh, it is my practice. I do believe very passionately in you reading the actual text of what God has to say, as opposed to simply listening to me say it. Uh, I do that because the Scripture makes a big point out of this. In fact, one of the uh, statements from the Apostle Paul to his protege is, don't neglect the public reading of the Scripture. So it's a little bit lengthy, uh, but I do believe it's worth it. This particular passage is one that we'll see in the sermon is actually of particular importance to Jesus Christ uh, in moments with his disciples that will ultimately prove very crucial for them, and I believe will likewise be crucial for you as well. So with that said, I'm going to read from Exodus chapter 16, verse 1 through 36, and I invite you now to listen with open ears as I read from this, the book that we love. They set out from Elim, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai, on the fifteenth day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and against Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we have died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, and behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them, whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they will bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, at evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, When the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat, and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling that you grumble against him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord." Then Moses said to Aaron, say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, at twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. In the evening quail came up and covered the camp, and in the morning dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. 
And Moses said to them, it is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it, each one of you, as much as he can eat. You shall each take an omer according to the number of persons that each of you has in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered some more, some less. But when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. And Moses said to them, let no one leave any of it over till the morning. But they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the morning, and it bred worms and stank. And Moses was angry with them. Morning by morning they gathered it, each as much as he could eat. But when the sun grew hot, it melted. On the sixth day they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each. And when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, This is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil, and all that is left over lay aside to be kept till the morning. So they laid it aside till the morning as Moses commanded them, and it did not stink, and there were no worms in it. Moses said, eat it today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is a Sabbath, there will be none. On the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain each of you in this place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. Now the house of Israel called its name manna. It was like coriander seed, white, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded. Let an omer be kept, of it be kept throughout your generations, so they may see the bread with which I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. And Moses said to Aaron, take a jar and put an omer of manna in it and place it before the Lord to be kept throughout your generations. As the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron placed it for the testimony to be kept. The people of Israel ate the manna 40 years till they came to a habitable land. They ate the manna till they came to the border of the land of Egypt. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord, our God, we come to this time and we sit under these words, and I recognize that uh, as we gather together this morning uh, in a room this size, that no doubt we come from all sorts of different places. Some of us come in here and we have experienced your provision. Some of us come in here uh, well-fed, with healthy bodies, with stable homes, uh, with bank accounts that are sufficient. And Lord, others of us come in here and we are in a season of need, some of us in a season of suffering or depression or anxiety, some of us here are likely even in despair. 
And Lord, I recognize further that some of us come here, many of us come here, and we do believe in you. We have believed in you for a long time. But no doubt there are others here who uh, we're not sure why we're here. We're not sure if you're real. Not sure if these words that have been read are historical. uh, And if they matter to the things that weigh us down, the things that keep us awake at night, the things that uh, increase our heart rate and our blood pressure. I want to pray that whatever place we find ourselves in, whether we come here in celebration or in sadness, whether we come here in faith or dealing with many doubts, I pray that you would give us grace to see that in the way that matters the most, all of us have come in this room ultimately the same, with a profound and an overwhelming need to hear from you, to know you, to be changed by you. I pray that you would give us eyes to see, give us minds to understand, hearts to believe that you have addressed this need in the person and work of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. Amen, well good morning and welcome. I'd like to ask, how many of you here are the parent of a tween? Anyone here the parent of a tween? Okay, how many of you are going to be the parent of a tween in the next five years, let's say? Okay, some more of you. Now, being the parent of a tween is a wonderful privilege, believe it or not. Okay, it is a wonderful privilege. But there is, I'm sorry to say to those of you who are not there yet, there is one difficulty in our current generation and our current age with being the parent of a tween. There is one difficulty that I need to prepare you for, those of you who have not yet experienced this, Sarah, okay? And that is slime, okay? There is a, there is a craze gripping the nation, it's tweens, whereby they are going on YouTube and doing chemistry experiments with glue, shaving cream, and glitter, okay? And my workshop, up until this week, was covered with glue, shaving cream, and glitter. But just this week, I received a text and said, it said this, said these words were gospel to my life. Dad, I don't make slime anymore. I want a skateboard. (laughs) And... I just, you know, not to make those of you who are not in this place yet jealous, but this has been one of the most profound transitions our family has ever experienced. And so we are rejoicing very deeply. But I'll tell you, though, there is a difference between having skateboarding as a hobby and slime making. You see, if you're, if you're trying to do some chemistry, you can go online and you can find out the various uh, measurements of the products you need, and you can produce slime, or at least you can make a huge mess, okay? But with skateboarding, right, skateboarding is actually a lot different, right? Because skateboarding does not rely as much on the intellect, it relies on the body memorizing certain patterns of movement with your body, with your legs, with your calves, right? and getting those movements to be synchronized in a way that does not simply happen by verbal instruction, right? So as we we are working currently, we are working on the ollie. We're going to get this, okay? And there's a lot of frustration with saying, just tell me how to do it. And I said, it doesn't work that way, honey. You have to practice until you get it. It took me a year, year's time, okay? So... 
Uh, so we're enjoying that, but I'm saying that to point out this reality, which this passage will actually point out for us as well, and that's this, friends. All right, there are certain things in life, there are certain truths, there are certain realities that you cannot learn simply from hearing or being told, right? No amount of hearing and being told how to do a 360 heel flip will accomplish you in doing that apart from practice, okay? There are certain things that hearing is not sufficient, but you need something more. And friends, it's one of the reasons why I think this passage is so significant to the things that you and I contend with on a daily basis as we attempt to walk with God, or if you're here and you don't believe as we do, as you attempt to walk through the world, some of the things that you contend with, some of the things that I believe you need to learn cannot be learned from simply hearing, but they only come through a certain kind of practice. Now, why do I say that? Well, this passage, as I was uh, mentioning earlier, uh, this passage is a very significant point of history in the nation of Israel. Uh, we've been covering their exodus from the land of slavery. They're on their way to a land that is characterized by complete and utter abundance, right? They're going to have abundance like has never been experienced before in their history. And as, as they are on this journey, one of the highlights of this journey are times of repeated need. So last time I spoke to you, they had come to a place, there was this great pool of water, they were excited by that, they went to drink it, and it was bitter, right? God provides a log that makes the water sweet, now they move on, and now they are in a season with nothing to eat. They are in a time of profound and repeated need. And what's interesting in this case is that God responds to them in such a way he gives them a practice that will last not for a day, not for a week, but for 40 years. And this particular practice is referred back to by Moses, and then, I believe, on at least two occasions from the mouth of Jesus Christ as he is speaking to those he cares deeply about. Let me read to you Moses' history of these events. This is from the book of Deuteronomy, uh, uh, chapter 8, verses 2 to 3. This is what Moses says, summarizing this season in the life of Israel. He says this, and you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger, speaking about this event, and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, and here's the key point, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. I want you to hear that for a second. I want you to, you need to hear this with all the clarity that is possible. This is the summary of what God is saying. It's a summary of the sermon. This is a summary for your lives. God says this, in order for you to truly know that your life does not 
depend on your circumstances or abilities or talent or history or place in order for you to know this, dear Israel, dear Ironworks, dear Sam, in order for you to know this, he said, you needed to hunger. You needed a time where you had no more resources left and where I would demonstrate this reality to you. And it needs to last for this people of Israel 40 years. Right? He said, therefore, know in your heart. This is what he's going to say in the next verse. I'm going to read it from you in Deuteronomy chapter 8. This is what he says at the end of that. He says, I'm making you know this. And then he says this in verse 5. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, so the Lord your God disciplines you. Now, you might struggle with this word discipline. The Lord is disciplining me. You know, he's taking me out back behind the woodshed. You know, what's going on here? Okay, well... Discipline, this word in Greek, right, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, is the word padia. Does anyone know where that word sounds like, right? It's where we derive the word pediatrics, right? So if you take your child to the pediatrician, what you're doing is saying, tell me what is needed for this child's health in life, right? And in the same way, what the scripture is envisioning is this that what the Lord was doing for this people in the wilderness, and the same reason, by the way, I believe he does things that have some degree of equivalence in your lives and in mine, the reason he does this, it's his pediatric activity. It's the way that he helps us stay and become healthy. Okay, that's what he's up to. And note here that for this group of people, that required 40 years of repeated need and having to be completely dependent upon his external provision. That's what it required. And now, friends, that's not the case for us in the exact same way, though I do believe there are some equivalencies. But what I would like to do is walk through what's happening to Israel, perhaps you might identify some equivalencies in your scenario. And I want to help us ask the question, how can we embrace the Lord's padia in our lives? How can we recognize where it is that we have resistance to him? And how can we move closer to him together this morning? So let's look at that together. I'm going to summarize what's happening here. So God brings Israel out of Egypt with incredible power. If you're familiar, if you've been listening along, uh, you know that he demonstrates his power in ways that were completely unprecedented in all of history uh, and have been since. He shows them his provision over and over and over again. And there's going to be at least three times where they come out of Egypt, they encounter a circumstance of need right, whether it be the bitter water, no food, right, or no water will be the next one. And in each of those times, there's a repeat of what happens, and it goes something like this. First thing they do is they recognize their need. We have this need. The next thing they do is they grumble, it says. They grumble. 
and they, their grumbling is directed towards Moses, but then in verse 4, uh, God it seems to indicate, excuse me, not verse 4, uh, that their grumbling is ultimately directed towards him, right? Uh, it says that their grumbling is not ultimately directed towards Moses, but it's ultimately directed towards him. And the word that will be used on the mouth of Jesus Christ is actually a word that features prominently in the Exodus, right? And that's the word hardness, right? So if you remember, uh, Pharaoh, okay, God is showing Pharaoh his power. Let me show you my power. I'm going to turn the Nile into blood. I'm going to give you locusts. I'm going to do all of these miracles. And in every case, right, save the last, you might say, in every case, Pharaoh sees the power of God one day he cries out to him, and then the next day his heart is hardened, right? His heart is hardened, so he cannot properly believe in or appreciate the power of God, all right? That's the main point of what's happening in Pharaoh's dealings with God. However, it's also the main point in what God is doing with his own people, Right? Every time they come into need, they grumble, they curse Moses, which is really cursing God. God provides. Right? They move on a little further, they come into need again, and instead of saying, you know, guys, remember how he did all these miracles, remember how he provided for us before, let's believe that he's going to provide for us again. Nope. They curse him again. They grumble again. And in fact, the grumbling would seem to actually be getting worse, right? So for example, in this passage, they don't simply complain about their circumstances, but now they start to assign motive to Moses. They don't simply say, this is bad. Where is God? What is he doing? They say, you have not simply not provided for us, but you have brought us out here to die, right? Which is, by the way, something I've seen happen. You know, you see folks start to complain about God, right? Start to complain about his choices or his decisions, and that complaint ultimately escalates into the assigning of evil, right? Which is what's happening for these folks here today. They will, they will begin to assign evil to God. And this is how God responds. This is how he responds. He says, well, I am going to do something in your midst that will show you who I am, that will reveal to you my glory. What is it that he does? Well, what he does is he leads them through a practice of being in repeated and continual need upon him in such a way that if they try to go outside of his structure, that they experience death and destruction, right, in the form of these maggots, okay? So this is what's happening. So God says this. He says, you're in need. I am going to feed you, but there's a couple rules. Number one, don't gather more than you need, right, overnight. And then number two, when it comes to the Sabbath, you are allowed to gather uh, enough for two days, but I don't want you to do any work on the Sabbath, and, of course, what we find 
is that uh, the, some of these folks are quick to do neither of those things, right? So in the very first instance, the Lord begins to uh, provide this quail and this interesting uh, material that comes in the morning, and they're told, don't gather more than you need. And some decide that they're going to build storehouses, they're going to get a mutual fund set up, and they're going to you know, store as much as possible, only to find out that it breeds words, it begins to stink, and it doesn't last until morning. That's the first thing. Second thing is, uh, they're told on the Sabbath, don't gather any, right? Gather twice as much the day before, and then, you know, bake what you're going to bake, boil what you're going to boil, but on the Sabbath, don't gather any. And of course, there are some that are saying, you know, we have to go out and gather because what if there's not enough the day after the Sabbath, right? And Moses gets very angry about this. What is God doing? Well, there's two principles that I want to bring out for you that I think are actually have some equivalency uh, for you today uh, that God has implemented specifically to teach things, to teach things that cannot simply be communicated verbally. And these principles are work and rest. Okay, we see in what God is doing the principle of the goodness of work and the goodness of rest. And what we find is that oftentimes uh, these two principles are the ones that I see to be often in the most dysfunction in you and in me. So let's look at it. The first is this. God provides for this people in such a way that requires work. Okay, he provides for people in such a way that requires work. And that shouldn't surprise us because before sin entered the world, right, when God created the original people, it's the first thing he does, right? One of the, one of the first things he does is he creates work, right? Before sin, before the world was broken and before we had wars and nuclear fallout and disease and cancer and all the things that we loathe, before the world was that place, it was a place where God said, I'm going to place you, Adam, in a garden. Why? So you can work it and take care of it. And what the Bible is showing for us today is the inherent goodness of work, that work is a good thing. Now, friends, I need to say this because we live in a context, we live in a culture that has a gospel message. And the gospel message goes something like this. Work as hard as you can, even if you have to neglect your family, work as hard as you can around the clock so that you can retire early and never have to work another day in your entire lives. That is the gospel of the American dream in this day. I hear this all the time. It's interesting, there was a one of these multi-level marketing companies where they, they preach this louder than anyone else, and uh, they had some connection to Christianity, and they actually said this. They said, you know, if you will work so hard around the clock to build your pyramid, or whatever they call it, right? Yes, you'll have to neglect your children. They actually said this. Yes, you'll have to neglect your children. But think about all the time you can spend with them after you retire at 30, won't it be worth it? That's actually what, you know, that's the, actually the message. And friends, um, you know, I've heard stories. Uh, my brother 
uh, actually worked for a man that experienced this. If you ever talk to people who work so hard that they're able to retire by the age of 30 or 35 or something like that, guess what you find in most of the cases, right? This is what, if you talk to these folks, what you find in most of the cases is that they all want to go back to work, right? So my my brother's his story, he bought a business from, man was incredibly successful, this guy retires very early, he's living on his yacht, that was fun for a short time, maybe six months. And then he said, I have to go back to work. This is not the dream I thought it would be. Right? Conversely, uh, there's a very well-known statistic that the majority of people who win the lottery, right, they'll all go broke within a number of years, whereas those who earn their wealth through hard work and business, uh, more often than not, they do not lose it. Right? What's, what's being shown here is a dysfunction in the view of work. And I want to, I just, you need to hear this because the American message that is broadcast all the time is that the best life to be lived is a life where you do not have to work. And I just want to tell you straight up that that message is in complete and utter contradiction with God's word. That God created work, that work is good, And in our passage, he prescribes work as a daily activity, or let's call it for six days of the week, a daily activity, through which his people would experience his provision. Okay? That's the first thing. But the second thing, the second principle that's just as significant in this and goes along with the first, and this is where I'll have more fun with you, most of you, maybe all of you, okay, is just as, right, you're a hard-working people, right? I just want to say, like, I admire the way that you work. So that's, you're all sitting here, like, coasting in the last part, okay? We're going to have some fun now. Okay, just as much as God prescribes work as part of his plan to provide for you, as much as that's a really significant part, the other thing he prescribes dear Ironworks Church, is rest, right? So he, provide, he prescribes daily work at least for six days, and then he prescribes rest. He says you must work hard for six days gathering what you need, and then you must rest. You must not work. And friends, uh, it's interesting because one of the things that I experience uh, both in myself and I see in many of you, right, is a very difficulty believing this second principle, right? I've got a lot to do. I can't get it all done. Yes, there should be rest, but that will come some other time, okay? All the time do I see this, both in myself and many of us, that we have a difficulty believing this second part where God says, six days you shall labor, but on the seventh, don't gather anything, okay? And what these folks did, some of them was they said, you know, no, we're going to go do that, okay? And so there's two principles here. There's the principle that God commands work and he commands rest. Okay, and why is he doing that? What is the purpose of this? 
right? What is the purpose of these 40 years? What is the purpose of the equivalencies of what God is doing in your life and mine? And the answer is very simple. Inside of me and inside of you, there are places where we don't truly believe that our lives depend not on our own effort, but on God. Right, that, is what, that is what every ounce of anxiety over the future ought to scream at you. Right? Every anxiety over the future, every sleepless night, right, every elevated blood pressure ought to scream at you, Darren, you do not yet know that your life is not dependent on whether the church likes you, right? Whether you're doing this or doing that, okay? Your life ultimately depends on the pleasure of God. Now, why do I say that? And this is, I think, the most crucial point that has been perhaps one of the most challenging things uh, in my Christian journey. So, Jesus Christ, this is where I think this passage is so significant. Jesus Christ does a certain repeat miracle that features as perhaps one of the most prominent in all of the Gospels. You know what that is? Miracle that he provides that's one of the most prominent in all of the Gospels. And that is the feeding first of the 4,000 and then next of the 5,000. Right? He, he, he does this twice for his disciples. He feeds the 5,000. Right, in one chapter, a couple chapters later in Mark, he feeds the 4,000, okay? And it's interesting because this miracle will be brought up by Jesus to his disciples uh, in two other occasions in the Gospel of Mark. Let me read to you from Mark chapter 6, verses 45 through 52. Okay, right after the feeding of the 5,000, it says this, immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. And after leaving them, he went up on a mountainside to pray. Later that night, the boat was in the middle of the lake, and he was alone on the land. He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. Shortly before dawn, he went out to them walking on the lake. He was about to pass them by, but when they saw him walking on the lake... They thought he was a ghost. They cried out because, all, because they all saw him and were terrified. Immediately he spoke to them and said, Take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. And verse 51 says this, Then he climbed into the boat with them and the wind died down. Now here's the key, key st statement. They were completely amazed. Why? Verse 52, For they had not understood about the loaves. Listen to that commentary. Jesus is walking to them on the water. They're absolutely terrified for their lives. And the commentary of the gospel writer is the reason that was the case, the origin of their freaking out for them and for you is why because they did not understand about the loaves. Isn't that wild? Now, what's even more interesting about it is that this issue comes up a second time 
in the Gospel of Mark. So let me read this from you. This is chapter 8, okay? This is right after the feeding of the 4,000. And Jesus and his disciples are off alone, and it says this, now they, speaking of the disciples, had forgotten, it's almost comical, now they had forgotten to bring bread. They had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he, that is Jesus, cautioned them, saying, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they, the disciples, began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? You hear that word, by the way? Think back to the Exodus. Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? Do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets of full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, 12. And the seven, ba- seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not understand? Do you hear what Jesus is saying here? Right? He's saying, you do not understand about the loaves. Right? You're freaking out, right? first in the boat, second over, which is, is, the second one is almost comical. Like, you almost think it's satirical. Jesus takes seven loaves and he feeds 4,000 people and the very next thing that happens is the disciples are afraid they won't have enough to eat. It's right after that in the feeding of the 4,000. And he says, the issue that you're experiencing is a hard heart, right? Language back to the Exodus. Are your hearts still hardened? And friends, I say this because... Uh, If this was the experience of these men and women who lived and walked with the man Jesus Christ, there shouldn't be any surprise that it is your experience as well as mine. So what are we to do with this? What are we to do with this as we realize that we are on this journey of learning something that does not simply come from hearing but has to come from practice, has to come from formation that for our ancestors took not just one season, but a generation, 40 years of time to learn. Well, I want to encourage you in two practical things that every one of you can do that I believe have some equivalency into what God is doing right now today. Right? Two things that God prescribes today that I think have some equivalency to what he was doing in the wilderness, okay? Two things. First thing is this. God commands us to give to him, in this thing called the tithe, before we know if there will be enough for what we need, right? It's called first fruits. He says, when you receive resources from me, first thing you do, offer a percentage back to me as the first fruits, like meaning before you know if there will be enough. And I'll tell you that uh, I used to struggle about this because I hate uh, what evangelists have done to the church as they've tried to raise money for their Gulfstream jets, right? Not going to do that, even though I do like Gulfstream, okay? Um, I've always struggled with this until I realized that this issue 
right? The issue of the tithe has a profound, direct impact on your spiritual joy, and I've seen it happen. I've seen some of you go from living in anxiety over money, right, living in fear over the future, to saying, I'm going to trust you, God, by obeying you in this way, even though I don't know where tomorrow's provision is coming from. Do you see what God is doing in that practice? You see, the tithe is not primarily about funding the church, right? And that was a lesson I had to learn, as I realized that our future as a church did not depend on the effectiveness of you know, my ministry or what I'm doing here or you know, how much folks have and their resources. Our future, just like yours, as a church, depends on the pleasure of God. And so God implements this discipline of the tithe, and as a church, our financial position turned around the season that we began to tithe as a church. And now we give 10% of everything that's received in that box we set aside for a future church plant. And when that decision was made in January of 2013, we went from being an incredibly under-resourced poor congregation to beginning to experience God's blessing, right? It's a practice, second practice, right, that God provides for you and I, and that's this. He provides the practice of Sabbath. He provides the practice of saying, God, not only will I trust you with my money, not knowing where the rest will be provided from, but I will trust you with my time. I will trust you that even though I feel overwhelmed, that you will provide the time for me that I need as I'm going to offer to you one day out of the week to step back from work, to step back from these responsibilities, and to use this time as a spiritual rest. Right? And some Christian traditions get really legalistic about it, and they say, you can't play softball on Sundays. Okay, but that's not the case here. In fact, we'd love it if you would play softball and help out our team. Okay. Um, so, in all seriousness, what I would offer you, dear friends, is this. God longs for you and I to know in our hearts that your lives, that my life, does not depend on our performance, right? That our sustenance is not dependent ultimately on us. He calls us to work hard as a regular basis, but he also calls us to rest even when we feel overwhelmed. And I want to invite you to embrace these practices and then to join me in searching our own hearts to say, God, where is it that there is still hardness? That's the word Jesus uses twice now, right? Are you still hardened? Their hearts were hardened. Where are your hearts hardened towards the provision of God, whether it be for time or resources or any other thing? That's the question this passage asks us to answer. And we're going to turn to this table now, and as we do, uh, we actually come back to this feeding of the 5,000 as Jesus has fed them now in John's gospel, right? In John's gospel, he feeds this crowd, he goes away, the crowd chases him, and the crowd actually brings up the manna. And they say, what are you going to give us to eat now? You fed us yesterday, what are you going to give us to eat now? Because I would remind you that Moses gave our ancestors bread from heaven. What are you going to give us? And you know what Jesus answers them? What does he say to them? 
I'm going to give you myself. In fact, he offends everyone there except the 12, who are probably offended but won't say it. And he says, you know what food I'm going to give you? I'm going to give you my own flesh and my own blood, which to a Jewish person at that time would have been absolutely outrageous, just like it is for us today. But what they didn't understand in that day and what the the people of Jesus' day didn't understand, what the Israelites didn't understand, and what you and I, if we're honest, really don't understand is that our deepest need is not the things that you're worried about right now. Things that are in your mind, will this work out? Will I have enough? Right? Will my children be happy? What you think is your deepest need, just like with these folks, is not actually the case. But your deepest need is to receive the very person of the Lord Jesus Christ, whom he offers freely to give to those who will believe. And so we're going to turn to this table where we are going to remember that deeply. In whatever place you're in today, where you're in a season of joy or a season of anxiety, whether you're in a season of work or rest, my simple plea to you is let's together examine our own hearts, let's examine our practices, and let's have perspective to see that just as these folks needed 40 years of conditioning to understand God, that just like that, you and I likewise have a similar need. And maybe we could open our hearts to him today and we could find something absolutely better than we ever imagined. As Jesus says, not only will I provide for you bread, but I will give you even myself. I won't just give you bread. I will give you myself. Let's pray together.